Welcome to Clabberty, hosted by me, Labby McCann. Hi, welcome to Clarity. This week we're going to expand upon the story that Larry began last week. It's concerning sexual assault on college campuses. Larry laid the foundation for identifying exactly what the problem is, how often it's occurring, who is the most at risk. In this episode, we'd like to focus on different approaches to try to address this epidemic of sexual violence on on college campuses. What is this? What do you think you're doing? It's not what it looks like, Larry. It's really not what it looks like. You think you could just replace me? You could just take my spot? After all my hard work, get, get out of here. Look, I'm sorry, Larry, I'm sorry. Get in your corner, Will. I, I just wanted to make sure the equipment worked. You, you understand, right? You ever try to pull something like this again? I don't even want to think about what I would do. It's not going to be pretty. You ever heard the name Jared Carmichael? What? Who's that? Exactly. Think on that, Will. Think on that. Welcome to Clarity. This week we're going to continue right where we left off on our main story concerning sexual assault on college campuses. According to an article on The Atlantic titled How Campus Sexual Assault Became So Politicized, written by Carolyn Kitchener, the author goes into how Betsy DeVos, who's in charge of the Department of Education, had officially revoked the Obama administration's guidance on college sexual assault, offering interim guidelines on how universities should handle the issue. According to this article, all 56 Democratic members of Congress who tweeted about the speech criticized it. Senator Bob Casey called DeVos' decision an insult to survivors of sexual assault, and Kristen Gillibrand said that it's a betrayal of our students, plain and simple. But that's also grossly simplifying the situation. Though Obama administration's policies weren't perfect. Emily Yaffe wrote for The Atlantic saying that DeVos would be sensible to change many of Obama's policies on college sexual assault. And Jeannie Gerson wrote for The New Yorker saying that if the statements made by DeVos were made by a different official in a different administration, they would seem rational, uncontroversial, and even banal. I think what's important to remember is that this is temporary, and it's not mandatory. Universities don't have to change anything. These are guidelines. Here are some of the reactions to the interim guidelines issued by DeVos. Victims' advocates have argued they favor the rights of the accused by, for example, making it easier for such students to appeal a decision, while others have described the interim rules as sensible and necessary. The article then points out, that the education department will adopt binding regulations after it consults with the public, and they allow universities to maintain many of their existing policies. For instance, the department allows campuses to continue using the controversial adjudication standards put in place by the Obama administration. It also asserts that any agreements Obama-era education department reached with universities it had found in violation of Title IX would remain in place. You may be asking, but Larry, what's this Title IX you're talking about? I've only read about a Title IX. Don't worry, I've got you covered. Those are Roman numerals. Here's some information about Title IX from ed.gov. 
the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights enforces, among other statutes, Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972. Title IX protects people from discrimination based on sex and education programs or activities that receive federal financial assistance. Title IX states that no person in the United States shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Some key issue areas in which recipients have Title IX obligations are recruitment, admissions, financial assistance, athletics, sex-based harassment, treatment of pregnant and parenting students, discipline, single-sex education, and unemployment. Also, recipient may not retaliate against any person for opposing an unlawful educational practice or policy. Kitchener writes, when it was introduced, Title IX applied primarily to gender discrimination in athletics. It wasn't until 1994 when the Education Department's Office for Civil Rights, OCR, introduced the idea that the law also applied to college sexual assault. Soon after that, in part because of pressure from feminist activists, frustrated by police inaction on the issue, it announced that Title IX required universities to adjudicate sexual assault cases. But for years, that guidance didn't actually change much on campuses. The Education Department only got involved in a few cases, and no political campaign, including President Obama's in 2008, included the issue in its platform. It wasn't until 2011 when Obama issued the Dear Colleague Letter and formed a White House task force to protect students from sexual assault that this became a national political conversation. A key change in policy was that universities should use a preponderance of evidence standard when adjudicating these cases. So unlike beyond a reasonable doubt, it would become it's more likely than not. This reduces the amount of evidence needed to make an accusation. And in the period from 2011 to 2017, 170 accused students have filed counter lawsuits accusing their universities of unfair treatment. Carolyn Kitchener points out that this has become truly a partisan issue, and she identifies that Democrats indiscriminately are defending the rights of victims, often ignoring the reliability of evidence, while Republicans are doing the opposite by protecting the accused. At times, even questioning whether sexual assault is an epidemic on college campuses. And if you listen to last week's episode, I think it's abundantly clear that we have a major problem on our hands. Later in this article, Kitchener writes, Red states like North Dakota and North Carolina have passed legislation to protect the rights of the accused, requiring that all students have lawyers and disciplinary hearings. The blue states of California, Connecticut, Illinois, and New York, on the other hand, have all passed Yes Means Yes legislation, which strongly favors victims' rights. These latter laws mandate, in order for sex to be consensual on college campuses, both parties need to explicitly provide consent. Again, setting a higher standard for the accused to prove that there was consent. The article points out that there's been very few bipartisan efforts to come to any kind of consensus concerning how to deal with the situation. Perhaps the most notable was a 2014 letter from 28 Harvard Law School professors who were urging the university to revise Obama-inspired procedures around sexual assault. 
But this didn't spur greater communication and cooperation. It's still a very partisan issue. If Republicans are solely interested in defending the accused, and Democrats only care about protecting victims, we're playing the political version of tug of war. Either nothing happens, or one side gets dragged through the mud. The next article was titled, That's My Justice. It's written by Jordan Ritter Khan, and it covers the story of Brenda Tracy. Over the past 20 months, Tracy has become the nation's leading advocate in the fight against sexual and relationship violence in college football. She herself was a victim, and she's gone on to speak at many universities to try to put a face on a victim. You're not just thinking of a stat. You have to stare face to face with someone who was violently attacked. She travels the country, speaking to coaches and student-athletes across sports of all levels, about her own experiences and about the ways that they can work to end rape culture. She has developed a campaign named Set the Expectation that calls on coaches and players to sign a pledge stating that they will work to fight the culture that surrounds sexual violence. She brainstorms proposed changes in university policies as a member of the NCAA's Commission to Combat Campus Sexual Violence. I personally like alliteration, but CCCSV is a little awkward to say. I think there's a better acronym available. How about the Coalition of Building Rape Awareness? No, wait, that spells COBRA. Don't use that one. According to this article, college football is among the many institutions facing its own reckoning with sexual violence. Independent investigative journalist Jessica Luther has counted at least 50 programs across all divisions that have dealt with allegations of sexual assault, from Florida State to Yale, Notre Dame, to Santa Barbara City College. This is not accounting for unreported cases, or those cases that never even went public. From the colleges they listed, you have state schools, private universities, Ivy League schools, and community colleges. This is not unique solely to Division I sports. According to a 1995 study, relying on data collected from 1991 to 93, white male athletes, who comprise only 3.3% of their gender's student population, were involved in 19% of reported sexual assault cases. I'm curious what that updated number is. Another study from 2015, from economists at Texas A&M, Montana State University, and the University of Wollongong in Australia showed a stark correlation between college football game days and reports of rape among 17 to 24-year-old women. Those reports increased by 41% on home game days and 15% on away game days, with an 82% increase on the days of rivalry games. Those stats alone are frightening. There's clearly something in this college culture that is causing a problem, there's an additional problem when sports are involved. And on days where an important game is happening, there's an even more significant rise in the risk. I think we need to explore exactly how these sport programs are feeding into sexual violence. The author continues, Many student-athletes have never heard a first-hand account of rape and its effects until listening to Tracy speak. For Tracy, at least, this process is also cathartic for her. She states, Telling my story is healing for me. I don't think you should make that assumption for someone. If you know of a victim, don't just encourage them to talk to people. Let them come to terms with that on their own. 
It may take some time, and it may be something that they're truly never comfortable with. In terms of the context of Brenda Tracy's specific attack, for the sake of time, I don't really want to elaborate on the details, and they're also extremely horrifying, but I will provide a brief synopsis. After midnight on June 24, 1998, when Tracy was 24 years old, she was dating a former Oregon State football player. She showed up to the apartment with a friend, who was dating a current football player, and they found several friends of both the man that Tracy was dating and the one her friend was dating. There were about five men present in that apartment. Tracy was offered a drink, which she normally would completely refuse, but these men pressured and encouraged her to drink, so she complied, saying that she only took one sip. Her head began spinning and she began to lose consciousness. The last thing she saw was two of these men rising together to walk into a back bedroom. The man that Tracy's friend was dating, Greg Ainsworth, told police he thought Tracy consented. Another individual, McFadden, quote, did not think Brenda was not consenting. That's a double negative. He continued, everyone is at fault for what happened. While another, Carlisle, paraphrased to the police something along the lines of, Tracy wanted to do this. Later, he changed that statement to saying that she said no before and after contact with her mouth and his penis, and that he also heard her telling the other men no as well. The fourth individual, Dandridge, said that while he did not remember Tracy telling anyone no, he did remember her asking all of them to leave her alone and let her sleep. He told police that he believed the situation was risky. His police report states that he did not think it was right and that he touched her because he was, quote, messed up. When asked specifically if he touched her under peer pressure, Dandridge said, kind of, and then was paraphrased as stating something along the lines of, that he's not that type of person. The final individual, Michael Ainsworth, made a statement to the police saying that he believed Tracy was giving him consent while he removed her clothes, but then is quoted as saying, he did not think it was right that all four of them had engaged in sexual acts with her, but other men were saying things like, she's just like that, she wants this. When asked if the others had violated Tracy, Michael Ainsworth said, yeah, but I know I didn't. He said he remembered her asking to be left alone when everyone else was touching her. The police then pointed out that Ainsworth also continued touching her even after Tracy asked to be left alone. His response was, I guess. Throughout all of this, Tracy was in and out of consciousness. She was drugged several times. Brenda, following this attack when she woke up, started to blame herself, saying things to herself like, why did I drink? Why the fuck did I drink? Questions were running through her mind like, this had to be my fault. What would my boyfriend think? What would my friends think? They might think I'm a slut. And I think that helps capture how damaging these situations are and how hard it is, even in a case, to me, this is abundantly clear that she was victimized. Even in that kind of case, the victim may not see it that way. They may take fault for, oh, I should have never been there in the first place. And that's not how we should be looking at these things. We should not excuse the behavior of even young men when they're clearly preying on an individual, someone they know, and someone who is dating a friend of theirs. And I think that's a very powerful message we need to send to all victims. This is not your fault. Even if there's things you could have done to avoid that situation, you were still victimized. And that's also why solely focusing on how victims can avoid placing themselves in those situations is damaging for the overall message. That's implying that this is largely their fault. 
And I've got to commend Brenda Tracy for sharing her experience to so many young people. As the article stated, putting a face to a victim is extremely important. It becomes much harder to victimize someone if they're not just a statistic. And even in this case, you hear from the men who assaulted and raped her that they were self-justifying as well. Oh, she wants this. This is what she's into. By telling themselves that, they were able to carry out this heinous act. The final article I'd like to expand upon is from ourbodiesourselves.org. It's written by Amy Newman. She writes, With so many young people gathered in one place, higher learning institutions have both an opportunity and a responsibility to address sexual violence. Federal law requires them to educate new students, teachers, and staff on the prevention of rape, dating violence, and sexual assault. But how colleges and universities go about doing this varies widely. Some schools require incoming freshmen to complete an online course on building empathy or dispelling myths about rape. Others offer in-person information sessions on healthy relationships and the effects of alcohol's impact on behavior. She then starts to identify policies that have been successful. In 2015, the New England Journal of Medicine published a study on an extraordinarily successful campus sexual violence prevention program that essentially trained young women to assess, acknowledge, and if necessary, rebuff unwanted sexual advances. The program was created by Canadian psychologist Dr. Charlene Sen, and the study found it to be a rare success among campus prevention programs. It reduced female college students' chances of being raped by 50%. That's a fantastic start. Newman then elaborates, however, this program, like others taught at colleges around the country, placed the responsibility on women to avoid being assaulted. Despite the program's success, it was called out for this very issue, according to the LA Times. By focusing on a potential victim's power to thwart her attackers, some experts warned that such a program might contribute to blaming victims. And I agree, I think that's a risk. I think those numbers are encouraging enough that this is a program that should be instituted in conjunction with a program that will reduce the likelihood of aggressors targeting women. If those two programs can work in concert, I think we can see significant change on a timeline that will make everyone happy. Amy Newman also writes that hundreds of colleges are now using bystander intervention training as a sexual assault prevention method. These programs place the burden on fellow students to intervene or get involved when they see a potentially dangerous scenario. The Huffington Post reported last year on the Green Dot program, which many colleges and universities are using to interrupt a situation and stop it from escalating. Here's a quote from that article. If people spot a guy at a party who may be bothering or taking advantage of someone, the thinking goes they can interrupt the situation and then stop the potential assailant's momentum, preventing a sexual assault from happening. No one even needs to utter the word rape. Newman continues, one of the benefits of bystander intervention programs is that they treat other students as allies who are empowered to help other students, especially freshman students. And like I've mentioned through these stats and articles, the beginning of the first and second semester is the most dangerous time for a freshman. You likely don't have the support of friend groups that you had in high school. You're in a new environment. Binge drinking is all over the place. 
And this is why I keep encouraging people to work together. We shouldn't be trying to demonize each other. We should find a way to collaborate and create the environment that we all want. And I think there's immense power when we're all looking out for each other. I was hoping to continue this story, but I'm sure I've already tested your patience. I truly appreciate you all bearing with me through all these stats and complicated issues. Next episode, I'm going to expand upon this story by focusing on a unique approach taken by two female professors at Columbia University and discuss what Mary Koss is doing at the University of Arizona with restorative justice. Let's cut to my interview with Mariana. Or Mariana, depending on how she wants to introduce herself. Normally, I would say, welcome to the show, but we're actually in your own home. And I truly appreciate you inviting us over. Can you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Mariana. Welcome to my home. I hope there aren't too many lights on for you, but here we go. I normally like it to be a little moody, you know, gets me in the vibe, but that's okay. (laughs) I, I truly appreciate that not only are you inviting us into your home, but you set up this interview. I canceled last minute a couple weeks ago due to excessive cigar smoking. You reached out to me, and all this coordination, it's really draining, so I gotta thank you. (laughs) No problem, Larry. Glad to help. And we're over at your home because you have a cat allergy. I do. And frankly, I don't mind being away from those little busybodies for a little bit. They they get on my nerves. I don't know how Will puts up with them. (laughs) Yeah, they don't like me. I don't like them. It's mutual. Understandable. You do have a dog. I do. She loves me. Excellent. And we may hear her at some point, so do not be distracted by any dog sounds. It could also be Will. Sometimes those are indistinguishable. (laughs) Long nails. Will has long nails. That's not fair, Larry. I forgot to trim them one time. All right. Let's get serious. How do you like other people to describe you? I hope that people would describe me as someone who gives completely of herself, directed by the heart, and then secondarily the mind, both in my work and in my home. What do you do professionally? I fundraise for a university in Los Angeles. Specifically, I work with parents of current students and international families. And then new to my role is work with a group called the Alliance of Women Philanthropists, which is really cool. It's a group of pretty badass women. Can you elaborate on what they do? Sure. So they're all affiliated with the university in one way or another as alumni, parents, and friends even. They come together a couple times a year to talk about issues, women's issues, that they want to champion on our campus for our students, primarily the female students, but male students are more than welcome to take part. So they meet a couple times on campus. They all make a gift to the university that goes to a pool. And then at the end of the fiscal year, they designate that money out. So it's a bigger impact than their individual gifts. So they learn about different programs throughout the year. In terms of programmatic, they have three things that they are championing. The first is a speaker series. The second is a panel of expert opportunity. And then the third is a luncheon where they can invite other women that they think might be interested in this. 
So the speaker series, though, is pretty top of mind for me because we have our first coming up in March, and we're bringing Gretchen Carlson on campus to talk about her work and her change and what's next for her and what she's learned from her experience. Pretty exciting stuff. You lent me that book, and I haven't read it yet, but I'm excited to read it. It's an interesting perspective she gives because she came from privilege. She came from every opportunity to succeed and then experienced what she experienced and how she had to change her course. It's not like a woman of color who lived a rough life, didn't have opportunities, and then this happened and she was prepared for it with her thicker skin. Is it a different perspective on this whole issue? And as a woman of color, mm-hmm. was that a unique perspective that you didn't have as much exposure to? So it's funny. The first time I read the book, I kind of thought it was a very simple book, that it was very surface. And so my perspective was not completely positive. Having discussed the book with other women and hearing their perspective of it and how the light that they shed on the angle that she took... I read it again under a different lens and had a whole new level of respect for where it was coming from and what her intentions were. And it was really interesting to read it the second time around. That's fascinating. And it seems to encompass a core idea of this show where, let me make sure we're recording. We are recording. Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Will, he forgot the headphones. He's already failing at his one task. And I try to be the patient person, but man... I, I might have to replace this guy. I, I'm sorry for I the tangent. Someone. I know someone. <laughs> but give me a card or a number. I truly appreciate that. What you just described really encompasses a core idea of this show, where it's not so much that there's a right way of seeing things. We all have a unique perspective, and I think there's incredible value in exposing yourself to different viewpoints. You can really learn a lot as a person and continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that sounds like your experience with Gretchen Carlson's book. Absolutely. This is a question I ask every interview subject, except apparently Vanessa last week. (laughs) In your own words, can you define feminism? Hmm. Define feminism or define how I think I'm affecting feminism? Whatever you feel like addressing. I'm not sure that I could call myself a feminist because I think like the real true feminists find every aspect of their lives to direct in that way, in that one path towards change for women's issues. And I don't think that's me, although I'm someone who, in my personal time, support women's issues. And I think the pivotal moment for me was becoming a mom of a girl, of a baby girl. Realizing the strength that motherhood gave me and the responsibility that motherhood gave me in creating a life within our home confines and then whatever reach I could have outside of that, creating a life and a world for her that she would succeed in, feel power in, feel strength in, feel equal in, that's what transformed me into, I think, my version of a feminist. What intrigues me is that you seem to view there's a correct feminism and yours might be exclusive. My viewpoint is your feminism is just as valid as any other form of feminism. And the reason I ask you to define it is because I think feminism is a term that people think has a unanimous definition. Hmm. And I don't think that's the case at all. Hmm. I think even within the radical feminist movement, you're going to see an incredible diversity in how they would define that term. And I think you are a feminist. Everything you described about raising your daughter to feel equal 
seems totally compatible with every feminism definition that I've come across. Hmm. And I'm curious why you seem to feel a pressure, hmm. like you're not meeting the standards of a movement that's theoretically there to support you and your daughter. Hmm. Really good point. I don't know. Maybe it's because I feel like I'm new to the game. Maybe it's because I've excused things away for a really long time. So maybe I don't have the right to wear that name. Or maybe it's because I know that I don't dedicate all of myself to that cause. So thank you for challenging me to think about that. Thank you for giving me the latitude to maybe consider myself differently. But it's definitely a new world for me. For me as well. Again, I want to make it abundantly clear. I am not the authority. I do not get to say, you're a feminist, you're not a feminist. I'm not a jerk like Will. I would never make that claim. So I think that what I'm exploring is just this concept that there's a right or wrong. And I question that. I think it's, it's much more subjective. And even within the feminist movement, I'm learning that there's first wave, second wave, third wave, fourth wave, fifth wave. And I need to educate myself on all the nuances of that. And I can imagine it's overwhelming for pretty much anyone. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's intimidating. Absolutely. It's intimidating. All that we feminists are working against is intimidating. But I think within the feminist world, it's still intimidating for me. Understandably. Yeah. You recently brought your daughter. Uh, how old is she? She's eight years old. You brought her to the Women's March in Los Angeles. How did you prepare for that experience? She was pretty, well, she was with filters in tune to the election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and knew what I was passionate about, knew what I thought was important, what our home thought was important. And then the things that she heard from other homes, whatever that gets translated into on the playground. So she was forming her own opinion about all of this and was truly heartbroken when she woke up the day after the election to hear that Donald Trump had won when the election, actually, interestingly enough, her teacher at the time was teaching them about the whole election process. She was in second grade and decided to run for class president. She had the primaries and then she made it through that to the next stage. And it was between her and a little boy. And she prepared the most incredible speech for the last day. It had humor. It had wit. It had passion. It was fantastic. And she learned a tough lesson because the day of the speeches, the little boy had not prepared his speech. So the teacher decided to give them one more day and they would do their speeches the next day. Unfortunately, my daughter shared hers with him in a very innocent way. She shared her speech, even performed it. And the next day he showed up with the exact same jokes and did his speech first and ultimately won. And I can't tell you, oh, I'm still pissed thinking about it. I was so pissed off that he was given the opportunity to get more time to steal her ideas. Second grade doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was happening on the same day as the election between Hillary and Trump. The two moments converging was so enraging for me and for her that this little boy, both Trump and her classmate, <laughs> so unprepared took this opportunity from a female and were given all of the opportunities that these two women weren't. It was incredible that it happened in those circumstances. And so we both woke up with heartache. It felt like it was going to be hard to catch our breath. It does sound like an accurate portrayal of the real world, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. Less talented men taking credit 
yeah. for women who are prepared. Right. It's interesting that she learned that lesson as early as she did. Right. I think a lot of people, they're out of college, and then they experience the reality of our world. Yeah. When do you think children should start getting involved in politics? Well, I thought it was really great that her teacher was teaching them the mechanics of it what it means, and all of these people then turns into two candidates. So I thought the learning of the mechanics of it was really interesting. Well, I have to say, the first time I voted was in the Obama election. So I was well into my adulthood. Like I said, I feel like I'm very new to this movement because I didn't really care. It's a difficult word to say, but I didn't feel like I could affect change. I don't wish that someone had told me sooner because the messages were there. I wish I had listened sooner. I wish I had cared sooner. And so I think that she is learning to care sooner. And that piece I'm very comfortable with. So I don't think, though, that I answered your question about how I prepared her for the march. But I wanted to give you context. No, no. That was a fantastic story. And I, I think we should expand it a little bit. I'm curious now what you felt like was preventing you from caring. Why you felt like your voice didn't matter. I don't think I had a true understanding of what being a Democrat meant, being a Republican, being... I don't even think that I knew what my parents were well into my high school years. And even then, it didn't seem so line in the sand for me. It didn't seem... And I don't know if that's me not knowing or just the tides have changed, but it didn't seem like if you were one, you disliked the other the way it seems like it is now. It didn't seem like there was an urgency for me to understand it. It didn't seem like my one vote would mean anything. It also, I didn't care enough to inform myself. I never felt like the stuff that was happening in Washington, D.C. would ever in a million years trickle down to little old me in San Diego. You're important, too. <laughs> I, I just want to make sure you, you recognize that. <laughs> All of us are important. Yeah. I do think that you're taking a lot of personal responsibility for this, but I wouldn't discount intentional disenfranchising. Hmm. Oh, it doesn't matter. Don't bother voting. We'll take care of that for you. Hmm. I think there's a lot of that going on in the country, and voter turnout captures that. Right. We're, we're getting tiny percentages of America making huge decisions for everyone else. Hmm. I think the point you brought up about you're a Democrat, now you hate Republicans. You're a Republican, you now hate Democrats. You don't have to agree with them. I hope you respect them, but I don't think that's even mandatory either. You just have to have a conversation. Sure. I don't know, though. This reality is so much more personal now. It's just so much more personal. The things that friends I've had for 20 years are standing behind, I have a hard time forgiving. I have a hard time picturing myself being able to compartmentalize that away and continue on with our friendship. It's different. It is a challenge. And some people, it's like you're talking to a brick wall. Mm -hmm. You can be as rational and understanding as you want, but they're not receptive. So it does work both ways. Right. But I do think ultimately extreme patience goes a long way. When you're persistent and consistent with your viewpoint, other people can't write it off. There's a fantastic documentary called Accidental Courtesy, where this black musician, he befriends KKK members. And it's fascinating because he's created friendships with high-ranking KKK members over 30 years. And he noticed that after maybe a decade or so, a lot of those individuals renounced their robes, gave him the KKK robes, 
And they genuinely seemed unable to hold on to that old mind frame. Hmm. If we're trying to solve racism in America, waiting 30 years is not very realistic. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> you, you could get me talking about this for hours. <laughs> and I apologize for trying to take the spotlight. <laughs> I'd like to return to the, the Women's March, yeah. where we mentioned a little bit about preparing your daughter for that march. What in particular were you worried about her witnessing? So we didn't go to the first one. We went to the second one. And truth be told, I regretted it for 365 days that we missed the first one. It was part of my process. I needed to know that it was safe. I needed to know what the outcomes were. I, I just needed that. I mean, we participated by watching and listening on the day of the first one, but I just wasn't ready. What I was afraid of was that number of people coming together and that there wouldn't be conflict. I couldn't come to terms with that being a possibility. Also, that folks that believed the opposite wouldn't try to create havoc around this march. I think also just since 9-11, I've been concerned about being in places with lots of people. I was also concerned about the tone of the women. Was their anger going to overshadow their passion? And how would I be able to translate that for my daughter? How would I be able to excuse some of the profanity she was going to hear, excuse some of the images that she was going to see, some of the rage she was going to feel? How would I be able to explain that? And so when I decided to go in the second year, I think the temperature had settled a little bit. And also we discussed what she might see. We discussed what she might hear. We talked about the words that she might hear, the images on posters that she might hopefully not understand. And so we went. We went prepared for something very new. The plan was that it was going to be my mom, myself, and my daughter. My mom had gone to the San Diego March the year before, and I think she was bummed to experience that on her own, and I don't think it was as profound as the one that happened in L.A. So she was happy to hear that we wanted to go and that she could come with us to the L.A. one. My husband and my dad were not interested in going, which was totally fine. But the morning of, my dad decided to go. And I think that was a decision of, these are my women going, and I'm a little bit concerned for their safety. So dad went with us. That was an incredible experience for him in a whole different way. But I also felt a little bit safer knowing that my dad was going to be there. So we got there. We got there early enough to be able to hear the speeches at the beginning of the march. It got definitely to a point where our bodies were so close to other bodies that my daughter started to panic. She's, you know, comes to about my chest, so she couldn't even see up. So all she could feel were a lot of bodies getting really, really close to the point where if something had happened, I don't know what we would have done. But everyone was so incredibly peaceful. Normally, like in a subway, when people are trying to squeeze by you, then everyone gets pissed that they're now in your space and no one's welcoming to that. But this was like, oh, you're trying to make your way through. I'll do everything I can to move my body a millimeter just to help you get through. I've never experienced strangers being so respectful to each other in a circumstance like that. I think that was our first experience. Then strangers wanted to get our picture of our three generations. People were so intrigued by our three generations coming to this march together. That was interesting for her and I think exciting for her. And then there were posters that, some that just went straight over her head, which is totally fine. And then some that really spoke to her. There was, her favorite one was Harry Potter would have died in book two had it not been for Hermione. She's so- <laughs> that, into, That's wonderful. <laughs> she's so into Harry Potter right now and could 
see that and read that and know exactly what that meant. And then we heard speeches, some of which were beautiful and moving. Some of them were songs that she could identify with. Some of them were angry, super angry with F-bombs and all the other bombs that she, she couldn't understand. And I think I watched her stop trying to understand. She just let those ones go by. And then we started marching. That's when she just got to look around and feel, <laughs> feel the power of a whole bunch of humans with one common goal, no matter where they came from, no matter what level of feminist they were. <laughs> and that part was so cool. And it reinforced for me why we were there. And hopefully when she's older and something really pisses her off, she will be one of the people ready to invite dialogue and make change with kindness. I think she's already well on the way there. I, I think you've given her a tremendous opportunity and it's clearly an impactful moment for you as well. I, I think possibly a transformational moment, seeing all that come together. Yeah. Is there any moment in your life prior to that where you felt that oneness, that singularity of minds? Um, yeah, actually. I felt that same overwhelming emotion that turned into a physical response when my mom and I were doing the three-day walk for breast cancer. And there was a moment before the walk took place, and I don't even think I would have recalled that moment had you not asked that question, but it was a moment before the walk took place where it was the same kind of gathering of women and men alike for this one positive cause to change humanity. It was one moment of collaboration for the betterment of humanity. That's wonderful. I, I gotta admit, in a prior episode, I was a bit critical of protests in general, thinking that they may not be the most effective way to create change, but it seems like on the individual level, it can be immensely impactful, and it seems like you're still carrying that energy with you, and it might be truly inspiring throughout all aspects of your life. It's cool when you see people on social media feeling the same way or on the news feeling the same way or even when you read. But when you feel, when you feel bodies, when you feel in real life, it's just a completely different experience. Thank you so much for sharing that. It moved me. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Larry. <laughs> I'm not being facetious either. That was truly an inspiring story. Do you wish you had the opportunity to participate in a march like that as a child? I don't think so, because it was all of the moments for the last 39 years that made that moment what it was. I don't think it would have been profound in any way for me. It would have been like, cool, let's do this today, and then what are we doing after that? Understandable. You already touched on this question, but can you think of any other ways that might prevent younger generations from becoming sexist or misogynistic? I don't know. That's real. I struggle with that because I already see it with all that I have tried to inform my daughter with, with all of this stuff and the great school that she's in. She's had female teachers. She's had male teachers. I still see her falling into playing the dumb girl role. And it blows my mind. I don't know where it is coming from, how it got there. She's freaking brilliant. And I know I'm her mom, but she tested into the gifted and talented program. And I see her sometimes when boys are around kind of taking second seat. And I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do about that. 
I think it's, it's a challenge for everyone because there's so many aspects of life that can influence that kind of behavior. It can be media, it can be the classroom, the, her father, all sorts of ways that you might not even be able to account for. Have you had a conversation with her about it? No. Well, I've had conversations with her about she doesn't always own who she is. She doesn't own her strength. She doesn't own her mind. She doesn't own who she is. When I do have conversations with her, and her response sometimes is, well, you're just saying that because you're my mom. So when I do have conversations with her, I try to talk to her in like tangible ways. These were the outcomes of your actions. This is not my opinion. These are the outcomes of your actions. So I try to talk to her about it in those ways. But it's so interesting to me because it feels like these responses are coming from a place inside that's been there from the day she was born. I would be a fool to think that I'm her only influence, but I am her primary influence. She visits her dad and she has kids at school and teachers and all of that, but I am her primary influence, so I would think that mine would be the one that I would see come out the most. But there's times when I see her respond in ways that I have to pause and think that this is not even coming from an outside influence, that it almost feels like it's coming from a place deep inside that existed before she even met reality, before she met civilization. It could seem foolish, it could seem ignorant, like I'm avoiding reality, but it just feels like it comes from an unlearned place. I think that's totally possible. And I think the nature versus nurture debate is important. Personally, I think how insidious culture can be, our society, and shaping how we behave and who we are is something that we underestimate. Are there any moments in your own life where you had the same tendency, like maybe you knew a man said something that was incorrect, but you decided that perhaps it's better to let him feel like he's right than to correct him. Yes. I, like most women, very unfortunately, excuse things away. We have this magnificent capacity for compartmentalization and can tuck things away and move on productively, happily, Although there have been moments in my life where those compartments got bigger than the space that I had allowed and required my response. One of those most prevalently was my first marriage. It was not great. It was apparent to me early on that it was not great, but I was born and raised Catholic and my religion was dictating my happiness, not my faith. I have now in my life separated the two very clearly. My faith and my religion are very different. My faith remains very strong. My religion, I question constantly. But at that time in my life, my religion was critically important and divorce was not on the table. Divorce was not an option. So I chugged along and I found my happiness independent of my husband, which is just a crappy marriage, but it was what I did to survive. And so when I wanted to have a baby, obviously that was with my husband. And so we had this incredible human and everything changed. Everything changed and my tolerance no longer existed. And I can remember clearly the moment at which I thought, I cannot raise a daughter to think that this is what marriage should be like, to think that this is what mommy should be like, to think that she doesn't deserve happiness and that I don't deserve happiness. So that was one of those moments when strength came from somewhere because excusing things away was no longer okay. 
Larry, should we take some calls? Uh, nah, nah, there's no need for that. Are you afraid Lionel's gonna call again? We can screen him, you know? Why do you say that? That's ridiculous. What a crazy accusation. I just don't feel like talking to callers right now. I'm, uh, a little tired. Whatever you say, Larry. Don't you look at me like that. You don't get to judge me. If you're so brave, why don't you announce the sponsor? With gusto. I was hoping that would be a punishment. This episode is brought to you by marijuana. It makes dealing with jerks like Larry much more tolerable. Hey, this is a family-friendly podcast. How dare you promote a federally illicit narcotic that has absolutely no medicinal benefits for things like Parkinson's, glaucoma, epilepsy, autoimmune diseases, pain relief, and recovery from chemotherapy. You're just being irresponsible, Will.